Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We introduced the book of 1 Corinthians last Sunday. We're going to begin going through the book this morning. The city of Corinth was known for its corruption. It had a reputation for sin and debauchery. I suppose if there was a modern day equivalent to Corinth, it would be a city like San Francisco or maybe Las Vegas, Sin City, or New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Unfortunately, the moral values and standards of the city had made their way into the church. And so this was a church with problems. A wide range of problems. They had everything from blatant immorality and drunkenness to envying and strife and divisions. You name it, they had it. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to confront the problems. But what I find interesting is the way he approaches it. Because before he tackles the problems, before he catalogs their failures, before he deals with their practice, he reminds them of their position in Jesus Christ. Sound familiar? That's the pattern of all of Paul's letters. He first gives our position in Christ. Here's who you are. And then he talks about our practice. Now I exhort you to start living like who you are. And in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians, he gives our position. And then in verse 10, he starts to talk about our practice. In fact, notice verse 10 of chapter 1. He says, now I exhort you, brethren. On the basis of what I just said, get your act together. Now this morning, we're going to look at these first nine verses, and we're going to see the Christian's position. We're going to see who we are in Jesus Christ. Verses 1 to 3 form the salutation. Now I don't want to brag, but I have memorized the first word in every one of Paul's letters. In all 13 letters, they begin with Paul. And of course, that's the customary way of writing in the Greek culture of the first century. When you wrote a letter, you would put your name first. I don't know who came up with the idea of putting your name last, because what do we do when we get a letter? We look at the end of the letter to see who wrote it, then we come back to the beginning. We have to you from me. They had from me to you. So we could tell right up front who it was from. Very practical. But not only does Paul give us his name, but he also tells us some further information about himself in verse 1. He says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Do you ever notice that he says that a lot? I'm Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, why is he always saying that? You know, oftentimes when we have a speaker, we will introduce a speaker. And we will often say he's doctor, a doctor of such and such, or he's written books, or he's got this kind of background. And, and uh, I, I, a couple years ago, I had the privilege of going back to my alma mater, to the Bible college that I went to and spoke at their spiritual emphasis week. 
And I spoke night and day for a week, and every time I spoke, a different professor introduced me. And I kind of got embarrassed after a while. It was like this introduction every time I came up to speak. And sometimes that only serves to sort of stroke our ego. But it's not intended to do that. The introduction is intended to lend credibility to the speaker. In a sense, it says this person is a person who has authority because of this background. And when Paul says, I'm an apostle, he's not saying that because he's stuck on himself. He's not saying that because he's bragging. In fact, later in this same letter, in chapter 15 and verse 9, he says, for I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle. So when he starts the book, he's not saying I'm an apostle because he's wanting self-glory. He's saying, I'm an apostle because he wants to lend credibility to this letter. You see, he's not saying, I'm an apostle, clap for me. He's saying, I'm an apostle, listen to me. Now, why would Paul need to defend his apostleship? Well, the answer is pretty obvious. Because his apostleship and his credibility and his authority was always being questioned. It was always being attacked. Jesus originally chose 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. One was disqualified, that was Judas. His place was taken in Acts chapter 1 by a fellow named Matthias. And these 12 apostles became the foundation for the early church. They were the ones in the early church who spoke with authority. In fact, Acts chapter 2 tells us the church was continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They were following, they were committed to the apostles' teaching. And then into this setting comes Paul. He's kind of a Johnny-come-lately. He didn't walk with Jesus when Jesus walked around with his disciples. He didn't see Jesus walk on the water. He hadn't seen the risen Christ before his ascension. While the other apostles were teaching and establishing the early church, what was Paul doing? He was persecuting the church. You know what the qualifications are for an apostle? In Acts chapter 1, there are two qualifications. You had to be chosen by the Lord, and you had to be a witness to his resurrection. Was Paul chosen by the Lord? Yes. Was he a witness of Jesus' resurrection? Yes. When did that happen? On the Damascus road. And that's why in Acts chapter, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read in verse 4, Paul says that Christ was risen and he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to 500 people at one time. And then he appeared to James. And then he says, and last of all, As it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul said, I was born out of time. In other words, we we know about premature babies. He was a post-mature baby. He was born late in that sense. And so he goes on to say in verse 9 of chapter 15, because I persecuted the church, I don't deserve to be called an apostle, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
So Paul was an easy target for people who wanted to discredit him, and apparently a lot of people wanted to discredit him. And so he's continually saying, I'm an apostle by the will of God. And that's the way he starts out this letter as well. Now look at the end of verse 1. He adds, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now who's Sosthenes? That's not a real familiar name. I don't hear any of you naming your children Sosthenes. Here's a guy in the scriptures we're not real familiar with. Who is this guy? Well, for one thing, he's probably the person who penned this letter. He is probably the secretary. In fact, at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16 and verse 21, Paul tells us that he writes the greeting at the end of the letter with his own hand, but the rest of the letter was dictated. So Sosthenes was the fellow who was writing it down as Paul dictated the letter. Now usually, if the secretary is mentioned at all in these letters, he's mentioned at the end, and he sort of sends a greeting at the end of the letter. But Sosthenes is mentioned at the beginning. Why is that? Well, because Sosthenes is not only dictating the letter, he is agreeing with the letter because he's very familiar with what's going on in the church at Corinth. You know why? Take your Bible and turn back to Acts chapter 18, which we looked at last week, where we saw the birth of the church in Corinth. Acts chapter 18 tells us that one of the first persons to be saved in the city of Corinth was, in verse 8, a fellow named Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue. He got saved. He was replaced as leader of the synagogue by another fellow, and you know what his name was? Chapter 18, verse 17 tells us his name was Sosthenes. Hmm. After Paul had been in Corinth for about a year and a half, the Jews got so upset with him that they brought him before the proconsul Gallio, saying he's teaching people to worship contrary to the law. And Gallio, who was a Greek, threw them out of his court saying, I don't make judgments on your law. And I want you to notice what happens in verse 17. It says, And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Now it's not really clear who's beating the guy up. Uh, It might have been the Greeks who said, you know, Why would you bring this religious stuff to our court so they're just pounding on the guy? Might have been the Jews who were pounding on him because they're essentially going to court and he's representing the Jews before the court and the court throws the case out and so they're upset because he presented such a lousy case so they take him outside and pound on him. I don't know who's pounding on him, but he's getting pounded on. Now, if this is the same Sosthenes then that tells us that he later came to faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's teeming with Paul, which is rather interesting because they were both church persecutors. Now he's teeming with Paul to write this letter of 1 Corinthians to the church at Corinth. Now, come back to 1 Corinthians and notice how he addresses the church 
in verse 2. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, Paul planted this church, but he doesn't say, I'm writing to my church. Apollos followed him as the pastor there. He doesn't say, I'm writing to Apollos' church. Who does he address this letter to? It's addressed to the church of God, which is at Corinth. When I hear a pastor talking about my church, I want to slap him. Because it's not my church. It's God's church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. And He doesn't need any competition. To the elders from Ephesus, Paul said in Acts 20, 28, shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. It's His church. He bought it. In 1 Peter 5.1, Peter says, I exhort the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. And so as Paul addresses this church, generally speaking, he calls them the church of God which is at Corinth. And then he addresses them more particularly, and in the, as we go on in verse 2, he says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Would you notice something? He calls them saints. You see, a saint is not a person who's been canonized by a church council. A saint is not a person venerated by the masses in candle-burning rituals. Ambrose Bierce sort of captured the popular definition of a saint when he, when he said, a saint is a dead sinner revised and edited. Well, that's not the biblical definition of a saint. You see, you don't have to appear on someone's dashboard to be a saint. The word saint means holy one, and Paul calls the Christians at Corinth perhaps the most carnal church in all of the New Testament, saints. He addresses them as holy ones. You say, well, wait a minute, Dan. They're not holy. Well, yes, they are. Positionally. Because if you look at verse 2, Paul says they had been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word sanctified means made holy. So he says, you are holy ones because you have been made holy in Christ Jesus. You see, when a person is born again, his sins are not only forgiven, he also receives the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's a great trade-off. He gets all of my sin, I get all of his righteousness. So I am just as righteous as Jesus Christ because I have his righteousness. So God can look at me in Jesus Christ and call me holy. He can call me a saint. Now how do you become a saint? Well, look at the rest of verse 2. He says, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord 
and ours. Everyone who by faith calls on the name of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is a saint. I'm a saint. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. Next time you introduce yourself, you can say, nice to meet you. I'm Saint Dwayne. I'm Saint Connie. I'm Saint Nick. And then Paul closes out the salutation with a greeting that really takes the form of a blessing in verse 3. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes a lot more sense than most of the greetings we give, doesn't it? I notice today when I'm walking around, people say something to me. You know what I say to them? Hey, 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 hey. And if I have time, it's, hey, what's happening? How's it going? You know, it's, we have interesting greetings. This was kind of the customary greeting of that day, but man, it's a lot better greeting. It's grace and peace. Grace was the typical Greek greeting. Peace was the typical Hebrew greeting. We know that word. That's one of the only Hebrew words we know. Shalom. So it's grace and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's try that greeting once in a while to each other. What a, what a blessing that is to give to someone. And so having addressed them as saints, as holy ones, Paul in the next six verses unfolds to them the benefits of being a saint. And I want us to look at those in three dimensions. You are a three-dimensional saint. Past, present, and future. First of all, your past. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. The first benefit of being a saint is the grace of God, which is what happened to me when I became a saint. In fact, it's how I became a saint. And this phrase in the Greek is an aorist participle emphasizing past action. I don't know how your translation reads, but it should read... The grace of God which was, past tense, given to you. You see, I have already received the grace of God. And when did I receive the grace of God? Well, look ahead to verse 6. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Now, the testimony of Christ has been confirmed. The testimony of Christ is true. People often say, God said it, I believe it. How's that go? God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And I like the person who came along and said, God said it, and that settles it, whether you believe it or not. You see, the testimony of Christ has been confirmed, but here he says it's been confirmed in you. You see, the moment I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, the moment I received Jesus Christ, his testimony was confirmed. That word means settled and made steadfast in me. And when that happened, I received the grace of God. Now, what is the grace of God? What is grace? 
We talk about that word a lot. That's one of those words that almost has become a religious word. We talk about grace. I'm not sure we have a good handle on what it really means. In its simplest form, it just means God's favor. But it's probably best understood by what it accomplishes. You see, because of God's grace, I have gone from being a guilty sinner, an enemy of God, deserving God's wrath, to being completely forgiven and made absolutely holy and righteous forever. That's the grace of God. I think sometimes we understand the grace of God best by what it isn't. We, we understand the nature of God's grace by what it eliminates, what it, what it cannot coexist with, what, it is not, what is mutually exclusive with grace. And let me suggest three things to you this morning so you'll understand grace better. Three things that grace eliminates. Number one is our merit. You see, you didn't get grace because you were more attractive to God than someone else. You didn't get grace because you were better than someone else. It's not like when you go and pick out flowers and you say, oh, those are really pretty. I think I'll take those. God didn't choose you because of any merit in you. You see, the nature of grace is that you don't deserve it and you can't deserve it. And somehow we tend to think of of our relationship with God as if we're in a classroom and God's the teacher and He's grading us all and we're kind of working our way up and we're kind of moving up from a C to a B and and we're gaining some brownie points with the teacher and maybe, maybe we don't score an A, but maybe He'll give us an A because of effort. You see, that's not the nature of grace. Grace eliminates our merit. In fact, grace is not offered to good people. By its very nature, grace is only available to bad people. That's why I always say that that, that church has a lot in common with the hell's angels. Because you have to admit that you're bad to get in. God doesn't go around saying, let me find some good people that may respond to the gospel. No, he has to go to the bad because that's the nature of grace. It's only received by those who say, I have no merit. I'm bad. Not in the, not in the modern fad sense, I'm bad. I'm rotten. That's why Jesus made a rather shocking statement to the religious people in his day in Matthew 21, 31. He said, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Why do you say that? Because tax collectors and prostitutes, tax collectors who were notorious thieves and prostitutes, were ready to say, I have no merit. Religious people find it harder to let go of their merit. And so Jesus says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom of God before you because the nature of grace is such that you have to drop your own merit. It eliminates our merit. Secondly, grace eliminates our debt. You didn't earn grace, and you didn't deserve grace, 
and you could never pay God back. And again, a lot of us get confused on this. We think, well, God paid for my salvation, and I've sort of got to try to pay Him back. It's kind of like if I bought you a brand new Lexus sitting out in the parking lot there, and I, I came in and I said, here's the keys, if I can find them. Here they are, the keys to this Lexus. It's yours, and I give it to you as a gift. And you start to walk away so excited, and you turn back and you reach in your pocket and you pull out a $5 bill and you say, here, Dan, let me try to help you pay for that Lexus. That's an insult. When we try to pay God back, it's like throwing pennies at Bill Gates. Hey, Bill, here's a dollar, and I know you need it. You see, we cannot pay for our salvation. And the nature of grace is that it eliminates our debt. Listen carefully. Grace is a gift. It's not a loan. God didn't loan you salvation to see if you could kind of pay Him back. He gave you salvation as a gift. In Romans 4.4, Paul says, "Now Now to the one who works... His wage is not credited as a favor, but is what is due. And that word favor is the word grace. To the one who works, his wage is not grace, it's what is due. If you work all week, on Friday when you get your paycheck, you don't say to your boss, oh, you shouldn't have. You say, where's my overtime? Why? Because you earned it. But grace can't coexist with works. Grace cannot be paid for. You see, that's what makes the good news good news. We don't have to pay for it. Now the irony is this. Grace makes us totally indebted to God but we can never repay Him. Or let me say it this way. We are completely indebted, but we have no debt. I am completely indebted to God in terms of gratitude and devotion, but I have no debt because He paid it all. And if you can't comprehend that, Join the club. Because that's what makes grace so amazing. Grace eliminates any human merit in me. Grace eliminates my debt. And thirdly, grace eliminates our guilt. Now this should be obvious, but apparently it's not because so many Christians struggle with guilt. But since our guilt is tied to our sin and grace pays for our entire debt of sin, we have no guilt. See, grace doesn't just pay for part of your sin. Grace pays for all of your sin. God didn't just make a down payment on your salvation. He paid the whole debt of your sin. Now we, 
tend to think in temporal terms because we are temporal beings. And so from our perspective, the farther in the past that a sin happened, the easier it is for us to forgive it. If you offended me, I'm getting so old now that if you offended me eight years ago, I probably don't even remember what you did to me. But if you ask me to forgive a sin that you did eight years ago, I can probably forgive that. If you ask me to forgive a sin that you committed eight minutes ago, I may have a harder time. Because we view things temporally. And then we want to transfer that over to God. And we say, well, God can forgive my ancient sins, but I think God has a real problem forgiving my recent sins, and I really don't understand how God could ever forgive my future sins. Because we try to put God into our temporal box. But see, God is not stuck in the temporal. He's eternal. How many of your sins were future when Jesus died on the cross? Every one of them. And He forgave them all. You see, grace eliminates guilt. And that's why the Bible says that God not only forgives our sin, but He remembers them no more. And you don't have to remember them either. So grace eliminates my merit my debt, and my guilt. Wow. That's pretty impressive. And he tells me that as a saint in the past, I already have been given grace. It's mine at the moment I receive Jesus Christ. So what are the benefits of being a saint? Your past, you have been given the grace of God. Secondly, your present, look at verse 5 that in everything you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. You have been enriched in everything. That sounds pretty good. 2 Peter 1.3 says, We have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Ephesians 1.3 says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. If you're a Christian, you have everything you need to live the life that God has called you to. And then he mentions a couple of areas. Speech and knowledge. And then he continues that thought in verse 7 when he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. He says to this church that has so many problems, he says that as a local church, As a body, you lack no gift. You don't need to be seeking more gifts. You have everything you need in order to know and speak the truth. You see, the Corinthians didn't need to get something more. They needed to use what they already had. Now, you would expect Paul to come to this church with all these problems and say, you need this, this, and this doesn't do that he says you've already got everything you need to walk as the children of God and so again he begins with their position and then he's going to work toward their practice what's the benefits of being a saint 
Your past, grace. Your present, you're enriched with all the resources of God. And then your future. Look at the rest of verse 7. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word revelation is a big intimidating word. It's just a word that means the unveiling. Kind of like when you have a a, a statue, a, a piece of art, and they cover it with a sheet, and then they pull the sheet off and they reveal this masterpiece. There is coming a day when Jesus Christ will be unveiled and revealed in all His glory before us. So he says, we are awaiting eagerly the unveiling of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is the future uncertain for saints? Is the future hopeless? No. He says, I'm waiting. I already know what's going to happen. Jesus is coming back and he's going to be unveiled. I'm just waiting for it to happen. And I'm waiting for it eagerly. Why? Because when Jesus comes back, look what it says in verse 8. The revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you worried about getting to the end? He says, he's confirming you. He's settled that. That you will be there in the end. And when you get to the end, when Jesus Christ comes back, get this, he says, you will be blameless. You say, but I, you know, it, I, I thought when Jesus came back, he's going to come back and say, Green, get over here. You did this and you did that. Uh-uh-uh. I thought when Jesus came back, he was going to put all my sin up on a big screen plasma TV for the world to see. And everybody was going to go, oh! Well, if that were true, then I wouldn't be eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back. I would be dreading Jesus coming back. This verse tells me that when Jesus comes back, I can be eagerly waiting for that because in that day, I am going to be held blameless. And he says, I am confirmed, settled, established until then. You say, well, Dan, how do you know that's really going to happen? Well, look at verse 9. God is faithful. Don't you like that? I'm not confident because of me. I'm not confident about you because of you. If it was up to you and me, we wouldn't make it. But God is faithful. You see, the one who called you a saint is faithful. The one who gave you his grace is faithful. The one who confirmed you blameless is faithful. And I can await eagerly His return because He's faithful. And all His promises, He's going to keep. You say, well, why would He do all this for me? Look at the rest of verse 9. Very interesting. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord. Wow. He didn't just save you to keep you out of hell. He didn't just make you a saint so you're presentable in heaven. He delivered you for, from sin and forgave you and confirmed you blameless so that you could have fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's a right now thing. You know, they're having that show tonight on the Discovery Channel. They found Jesus' bones in Jerusalem. I heard a fellow making the argument that he said, now I believe that Jesus really existed because they found his bones. Well, you can have him if his bones are in a grave over in Jerusalem. I may watch the show just to get some sermon illustrations. But see, Jesus is not in a tomb in Jerusalem because I talked to him this morning. He is risen, and He is alive, and He has fellowship with us. What a privilege! Talk about, you know, dropping names. Yeah, I was talking to Jesus this morning. That's our privilege. We are saints, not so we can brag about it. We are, saints. We are holy so we can have a holy relationship with the one who is holy, holy, holy. And we have fellowship with Him. Every moment of every day. He lives in us and we live in Him. What a privilege. So to the church at Corinth, Paul says, you're saints. You're holy. Made holy in Christ Jesus. In the past, you have received God's grace. In the present, you have received God's resources. And in the future, you have got God's guarantee. You will be confirmed blameless. Now you know what he's going to say in the rest of the book? Now on the basis of who you are, start becoming who you are. You are a saint. Now start living like one in the practical areas of your life. I'm going to have the praise team come back. I told them they weren't coming. I assured them. You see, I'm not faithful. I want us to sing, I want us to stand and sing that song, In Christ Alone. Because it's got a great line in it. It's, no guilt in life. And we can say that this morning.